you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. As you find that, I just want to say it's a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, my wife and I have visited you as uh, visitors uh, when we've come to Williamsburg, but uh, never to preach. So it's a delight to be here. I also want to say that uh, I have the privilege of, of uh, serving on the uh, RUF um, Commonwealth Committee, the uh, Reform University Fellowship Committee. And so uh, one of my responsibilities on that committee and for our presbytery is to shepherd Ben Robertson. And I greatly enjoy my friendship with Ben and Don. Let's give our attention to the uh, reading of God's word. Psalm 16, beginning with verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forevermore. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, from time to time, as the uh, counseling pastor at Westminster, I'll take a glance at uh, the magazine Psychology Today as I go to the library. And uh, there's a few, there's an interesting article um, a while back written by L.A. publicist Michael Levine. He was out in Los Angeles and he wrote an article entitled, Why I Hate Beauty. And it kind of grabbed my attention. Levine was growing frustrated by the uh, glitz and the glamour that surrounded him in Los Angeles. And he was growing cynical of what he called the images of extraordinary and unattainable women. He even cited studies in psychology, hence it was in Psychology Today, that talks about the effects that it, it was having on, on women. And uh, he went on to say that the standards that uh, we raise in our culture really tend to devalue women in the way we think about them. And uh, he goes on to, uh, to describe how these women or women in general just kind of compare to themselves to these almost impossible standards that they can't meet. And then lo and behold, a um, cosmetic company will come out with a new line of cosmetics that says, you know, we can make you even more beautiful than you are today. He goes on to describe that some of the men in Los Angeles have become jaded and uh, it just describes about how it affects and impacts their lives as well. It often leaves men, uh, this, this, this concept of beauty, this elusiveness of this uh, standard, uh, can also leave men um, lonely, feeling lonely and, and yearning for superficial beauty instead of loving real men, women uh, with the real love. 
And he goes on to uh, write in his article, he says, My exposure to extreme beauty is ruining my capacity to love the ordinary woman of the real world. Women who are likely to meet my needs for deep connection and partnership of the soul. I think this illustration um, really speaks to how we can take something good like beauty and we can um, make, take something that was never really meant to be uh, something ultimately satisfying in our lives. And we can make that thing, whatever it is, an end in itself. We can take a desire of our heart, a desire that's, that's good, uh, relatively speaking, and, and we can take that desire and we can just keep, we just supersize it, make it bigger than reality, so that it, even if we attain that desire, um, it really wouldn't ultimately satisfy us and bring us la lasting satisfaction. You know, I, I talk to people and I counsel people. Uh, for many people, that's their concept of joy. For them, joy just seems to be so unattainable, so elusive, so fleeting. This morning, I want to, uh, to, um, to speak out of Psalm 16, because Psalm 16 is, is really about joy. It's about fullness of joy. And we're going to see this morning that lasting and, and full joy is found in a person. It's found in a person who the, the prophets described had no outward beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. But it's found in a, a person whose own joy is indestructible and overflowing. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus, and this is a messianic psalm. It's messianic in character. All psalms point to Jesus, uh, but some psalms are more are explicit in the way they point to Jesus, and this is one of them. Jesus said in the New Testament as, uh, concerning his own joy, he says, These things I say to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. In other words, he's saying that his joy is the Niagara Falls of all joys. Come and be filled. Be filled to all the fullness of the, with the joy of Jesus. And I think that um, sometimes we feel empty. Maybe you're feeling empty right now because you're attempting to find full and lasting joy by, by sitting under the trickle of a broken rain gutter, trying to find joy, trying to find joy that is, that is lasting and real. And this psalm is bidding us come. It's bidding us come to find fullness of joy, to come and find the Niagara Falls of joys. And so if we're going to do this, I want to look at um, three questions that I believe that kind of rise out of the text that we need to look at if we're going to understand what it means to have fullness of joy. And the first question is this. The first question is, what are you chasing after to bring you joy? What are you pursuing? What are you running after to bring you fullness of joy? Look with me in uh, verse 4. We're going to look at it in two parts. The first part of verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Have you ever chased after something in life and you've pursued it and you've pursued it and you've run after it and you've chased after it only to discover when you've caught up to it it's, it's not really the real deal? That's what kind of David is saying here when he says the sorrows of those who run after other gods or pursue or chase after other gods. The word sorrow there in the Hebrew is actually translated in other passages uh, in the Old Testament as heartache. He's, and David is saying that um, you know, we, we chase after things that we think are going to bring us fullness of joy and they always disappoint. In other words, David is saying right here in verse 4 where not to find joy. 
you know, it's kind of like going to New York City. And, um, you know, you, many, many of my friends have gone to New York City and they, they uh, meet a, a con man or a street peddler and they begin to um, uh, look at their merchandise and they, bu they buy imitation um, products, imitation Gucci purses. I have a friend that has an imitation product purse. And then, you know, you buy the imitation product and you get on the plane and what happens? The, the handle snaps off. And David is saying that, you know, we live in a, a world filled with imitation gods, imitation uh, imposter gods who tried to sell us their imitation joys. We see that uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people, uh, bought the imitation joys right out of the trunk of foreign nations. They, uh, the surrounding nations that surrounded Israel worshipped gods like Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch, and uh, these, these gods often represented some aspect of creation, uh, good aspects of creation, things like fertility and crops or relationships or rain or sexuality. And uh, the, the Israelites' desires for these things would begin to start pulling at their heartstring. And it, it kind of goes something like this. Imagine you're a farmer and that your father... Um, wandered through the, uh, the wilderness, and God rescued uh, your family and, and God's people out of Egypt and out of the slavery of Egypt, and, and he brought you into the inheritance. And uh, you've inherited your father's farm. Now, he's never farmed a day in his life, but you're trying to make a go of it. And uh, so you have this farm. That's, in verse 6, it talks about the plot lines. This is the inheritance. This is your farm. And it's not going too well for you. And your wife is asking you, you know, well, how are the crops going this month? And, honey, and you just shake your head and, and you wander down to the ancient Near East Lowe's where you're, trying, you're scratching your head. What, what can I do to scrape up a living? And there's a, uh, one of your pagan neighbors is there and, and he said, you know what? You, you ought to try Baal, the rain god. Yeah, uh, we've had some success with Baal. And, and you say, no, thank you. You know, Yahweh will provide for our family. Yahweh will provide. But after a while, you just begin to give in. You begin to uh, think, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have a little rain. Um, you know, and then you find out that Baal worship included a new whole set of friends that are fun. Uh, the Baal worship included some new business contacts for your harvest. And then you find out very conveniently that Baal worship includes ritual prostitution on hilltop shrines. You see the descent in to idolatry, into chasing after other gods. It's incremental, and it's always imperceptible. God's people get seduced away from God incrementally by his created things, good things like crops and fertility and relationships and sexuality. And these types of gods map onto the deeper idols of the heart, the deeper idols that are common to man, things like security and affirmation, things like power and affection. Jeremiah, the prophet, takes up this theme of chasing after and pursuing things that are empty. In one chapter, he says that, that we have this way of pursuing our own course like a stallion charging into battle. In another chapter, and this is, I find this fascinating, in chapter 2, uh, God is calling out to his people like a lover, like a, a bridegroom calling for his bride. He says, I have loved you and I've always wanted to be with you. And then in a few verses later in chapter 2, uh, like a spurned lover, God says, how skilled you are in pursuing love, that even the worst women 
can learn of your ways. That's fascinating to me because he doesn't say how skilled you are at uh, falling in love with things. He says how skilled you are in pursuing love. In other words, things that you think are going to fulfill you and love you back. And then he says, even the worst women can learn of your ways. What's, all, what's that about? Well, the prophet is saying that, um, that the Israelites had become so skilled and adept at idolatry that they could teach lessons to their pagan neighbors and their surrounding communities. In other words, they could give a seminar entitled How to Be a Monotheist and Have Other Gods. They were that skilled. And David here is saying in the psalm that we tend to chase after things that we believe is going to give us fullness of joy, lasting joy and permanence of joy. And we chase and we chase and we pursue and we pursue. He says it a different way in uh, the second part of verse 4. Look with me there in verse 4. He writes, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on their lips. What he's saying here is he's using common language of the day. And he's talking about sacrifices and offerings that are an attempt to manipulate the gods. Remember the contest between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal? And Elijah takes a bull and he cuts it in half and he uh, challenges them to, to a contest. He says, you know, you, you put a, a pile of wood over here for me and a pile of wood over there for you. And we'll cut this bull in half and we'll lay it on the pile and then you will uh, cry out to our God. You cry out to the God of Baal, I'll cry out to Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. And they tried all these things to manipulate Baal into action. I think that's a picture of the way you and I sacrifice our energy and our resources, our time and our efforts, and we sink them into things that's going to bring us true and lasting joy and fullness of joy. You know, at this point, you can almost expect a collective yawn from the uh, congregation. Now, Dan, that's, that's really nice. Um, Camper and Brandon and Ben have been telling us these things for years. But I want you to think a little deeper this morning, okay? I want you to think like this. I want you to just think about right now what you're most worried about. What is it that brings anxiety into your life? I want you to think about that. I want you to lock it in right now. You got it? Whatever you're worried about right now, there's an over-sacrificing of your God-given imagination. God gave you an imagination. He's given you a wonderful intellect to use for loving him, enjoying him, and loving God's people, loving people in the world. Whatever you're worried about right now, there's this over-sacrificing of your imagination. There's a pouring out of libations in your life, and you chase, and you chase, and you sacrifice, and you sacrifice. But we're not satisfied. Where is there over-sacrificing and the pouring out of libations in your life this morning? Maybe if you're a student here, it's to be the best in your class. Maybe, um, maybe it's to be the most desirable woman. Maybe it's to have the, the securest stock portfolio that you can possibly have in this economy. Maybe you have more modest goals if you're a student. Maybe it's trying to make uh, the level of captain and uh, call of duty. Where, where is it in your life? Maybe it's just trying to out-holy other people. Just trying to out-holy the person that is next to you. And, you know, really, that's just, just a form of self-righteousness that really doesn't satisfy in the end. It doesn't deliver what we're hoping for. You know, there's secular versions of this, secular ways of doing this. You can try to manage and control your life to the nth degree. And what you eat 
and what you wear and managing your schedule and honing your skills and abilities to the nth degree. Tim, Alice, Tim Allen is a, a well-known comedian. He's a pretty funny guy. He's made some movies that were you know, a little cheesy, uh, but he's... <laughs> He's best known for Home Improvement, and I, I, it's a pretty funny show. And uh, there was an interview with him years ago. It's a very telling interview. You know, he had climbed the ladder of success by honing his, uh, his skills in comedy and acting. And this, um, this interviewer asked him, you know, you've made it to the top, Tim. What's one word to describe how you feel? And he just blinked at her and said, despair. The point is that we often make good things, ultimate things, and we think that they're going to bring us lasting joy, fullness of joy, and we chase and we chase, and we run and we run, and we're exhausted, and they don't deliver. So the first question is, you know, what are you chasing after bringing you to find fullness of joy? The second question, the logical question that we need to answer and take out this morning is, well, where do you find fullness of joy? The psalmist answers this in uh, this question in verses 8 through 11. Let's give our attention back to in verse 8. David writes, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let my, the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These verses are talking about something that is so permanent and so secure that not even uh, one of our greatest enemies, death, can shake that. It can't affect that. And David is saying that um, when he says that joy is at God's right hand, he's saying that um, there's a deeper joy, there's a the place of permanence that we need to run to. As I mentioned before, this is a messianic psalm, and even though David did not understand the, uh, the full significance of his own prophecy, uh, it's a description of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, this passage of Scripture is quoted several times in the New Testament, and because you have a congregational meeting this morning, we're not going to turn to one of them, but I'm just going to, to give you a quick flyover. One of those passages is Acts chapter 2. And Peter is preaching the great sermon there, and he is connecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to joy and to hope. And he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 in its entirety, and he says, you know what, this is not about David. And he says, you know, David's bones are still here and his tomb is still with us. And then he goes, uh, goes on to say that David did not ascend to heaven the way Jesus did in the resurrection. In fact, David said this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So what Peter's saying here is that we find fullness of joy in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find fullness of joy in our glorious future. We find fullness of joy in knowing that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. He has accomplished his work. It is finished, is what he said on the cross. And he's accomplished his work by his perfect life of obedience and by his sacrificial death and by his triumphant resurrection. It is finished 
And now he sits in a position of authority. So our joy is secure because his throne is secure. And Jesus defeats death. And he sits with joy in the glad presence of God the Father. The writer of Hebrew kind of picks up on this theme of the exalted Christ, the enthroned Christ who lived a life of perfect obedience in chapter 1. And it's really interesting to me, um, Jesus is um, depicted as enthroned, he's seated, seated at the right hand of God, and God the Father comes to anoint him with oil. And it's really interesting, what kind of oil is it? You would think that it's the oil of victory, or the oil of triumph. He says, I'm going to anoint him with the oil of joy, the oil of gladness. It's a picture of the celebration of a royal wedding. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be awesome if every morning you could get up, my dermatologist said, Dan, you're fair skinned, you need to wear sunscreen every day, so put on sunscreen every day, especially in the summer. Wouldn't it be awesome if every day, instead of putting on sunscreen, you could apply the oil of gladness? The oil, I, you know, I'd be putting on the oil of joy every morning. It'd be on my nightstands. I'd just reach for it. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of doing a wedding for a couple on Virginia Beach, on the beach, and it was on a secluded part of the beach, and I had no idea where I was going. I had to follow the groom, who was a staff sergeant in the United States Marines, and I was following this guy, and there was all these dunes, and it was the right path, and the and the wrong path, and you know, as a good staff sergeant, he said, uh, follow me, no worries, just follow me. So I, I didn't know if I was going to, to a wedding or, or to a battle. And, um, and right before we, we cut through this path in the dunes, the father of the, of the bride, okay, who has young kids, uh, the bride has young, young siblings, he knelt down and very gently and very lovingly slathered his son with suntan lotion. And God is saying in verse 11 of Psalm chapter 16, when you set your hope on me, when you set your heart on me, when you set your longings and affections on me, I will show you the path of life despite its twists and turns and setbacks and challenges. And I will slather you with the joy of my son, the joy that can only be found in the presence of my resurrected son. I've had to rehearse this um, passage, particularly verse 11. 11 verse 11 is kind of a uh, life verse for me. It's very important to me. And um, earlier this summer, it was actually at General Assembly where Ron was there and Brian was there and Camper was there and a few others of you were there. Uh, one morning I was sitting outside and I was watching the sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean and I was just thinking about this verse. And, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was dealing with some gloom in my life. Now, it's, you know, as a counselor, I'm going to say this, that it's not necessarily uh, sin to be sad, okay? Uh, after all, Jesus was called the man of sorrows, wasn't he? Now think about that. Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Jesus went hungry for you. Jesus was thirsty for you. Jesus was betrayed for you. He was denied for you. He was beaten. He was hung on the cross. He bled for you. He was called the man of sorrows. And as, as your high priest, he's constantly welcoming you. 
He's constantly interceding for you. He's constantly dialed in to your pain and your heartache. But gloom must never dominate our lives. And I was sitting on the beach and I was thinking about Psalm 16 and I was reading a devotional from John Piper that I hadn't read in years and years and years called Seeing and Savoring Jesus. And he's, he was really wrestling with this seeming tension between uh, Jesus having this indestructible joy that he wants to give us to expand our capacity for joy and Jesus being the man of sorrows. And this is what he wrote. He wrote this prayer that blew me away. He said this, Lord, we delight in the truth that you can be infinitely happy without being callous to our pain. We stand in wonder that the light of Jesus' joy makes a rainbow in the tears on his face. We long to be like that. We want to be strong and unshakable in the joy of our faith, but we don't want to be oblivious to the grievousness of our own sin or the pain of other people's distress. Oh God, fulfill in us the purpose of your Son, promising that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. Amen. And that really struck me. That metaphor of the light of Jesus' joy making a rainbow in the tears of his face just struck me. It drew me in. I was mesmerized by Jesus. I was entranced by Jesus right there on that beach. You know, I love rainbows. I just absolutely love rainbows. There's something about them that draws me to a rainbow. I know it's a little kooky, but I stare at them. I gaze at them. I have to share it. I call my wife and say, Look, where are you now? Look out your window. There's a double rainbow out there. Do you see it? My friends, if you want joy, the fullness of joy, then be mesmerized by Jesus and draw near to Jesus and be entranced by Jesus. So we asked two questions so far. The first question is, what are you chasing after? What are you pursuing? What are you running after to find fullness of joy? The second question is, okay, where do you find fullness of joy? And the third question is a very practical question. The third question is this, how does this fullness of joy help me here in the here and now? How, how does it help me live now, Dan? Let's put, uh, let's put the, uh, the rubber to the road. Go back with me to Psalm, chapter, uh, six, uh, Psalm 16, verses 3. And then five and six. David writes, As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is practical stuff. This is where we live and breathe. In other words, in a life of, of a broken world where there's imposter joys trying to sell you imposter joys out of their trunk, how do we live in the here and now with fullness of joy? And here's the answer. Are you ready for it? Ready? See some nods. If I'm not looking, if I'm not looking for things and people and situations to give me joy, then I am truly free to enjoy people and things and situations. Let's take it verse 3 for, first. As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones. They are whom are all my delight. In other words, I am free. If I, if I know this fullness of, of joy that's in Jesus, then I am free to enjoy the fellowship of God's people. Now, this is very important. 
Because fullness of joy sets me free from being my tendency to uh, being utilitarian in my relationships. In other words, people are just a means to get what I want. People are just a mechanism or a means to provide me joy. And fullness of joy sets me free from that tyranny of being utilitarian in my relationships. Fullness of joy uh, also frees me from the fear of man, being uh, kind of dancing in my life according to the frowns and the smiles of people. I don't need to fear people. In other words, I'm free to love the church. I'm free to love his bride. I'm free to delight in the, God's work of grace, transforming broken people and broken lives into his trophies of grace. There's a Puritan prayer and found in the Valley of Vision called In Prayer. And there's a, there's a phrase in there that just really captures this. The Puritan prays, In prayer, my soul inwardly exults with lively thoughts at what thou art doing for thy church. I hope there's fullness of joy at Grace Covenant where you can, even in, in, during an interim period where things are kind of uncertain, that you're free with fullness of joy to appreciate and delight in God's work, his transforming work of grace right here. But not only do we, can we delight in what God is doing in the church, we can really enjoy our possessions, our things, our stuff. Look with me in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now he's talking about actual property, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, he's talking about uh, probably the, the real estate allotment of the promised land, but it's probably more of a metaphor to describe the creature comforts that David enjoys. And David is saying that the only way to really enjoy these things if we, is if we have fullness of joy in the resurrected one. So, so just some practical questions this morning. Where do you tend to overwork? might be a place where you're trying to find joy. Where do you tend to underwork? Maybe there's something symptomatic there. Where do you tend to overstudy if you are a student? Where do you tend to overrecreate? We do these things because we believe in our hearts that they will bring us fullness of joy, or they disappoint. Walter was a retired police officer in, uh, from uh, the um, New England area, and he moved to Florida to live in a retirement uh, community, to live out his dream in retirement. And um, he uh, moved to the area where I was pastoring. And he was lonely, so he got involved in a fraternal society to bring him a sense of belonging. He didn't have that, that, um, that sense of belonging he had on the police force up north. And he found a place of service. And he discovered that it felt really good to serve the community and to serve this fraternal society. And then he got this idea in his head that he could multiply his, his joy times two if he found a church. And so he started attending our church and uh, started serving in various ways. And then uh, he and I, Walter and I started hanging out and having gospel discussions. And uh, he, um, his life or his sense of security became kind of undercut because he began to see for the first time, that he could not earn God's favor by his morality, by his goodness, by his service, or by his sense of belonging. And Walter became very angry at me, and you don't want Walter angry at you. All, Walter is very big. 
Walter started avoiding me, and then one day during the week, he showed up at the church, and I was coming out of the restroom, and there he was, standing in the foyer. There was no escape. So I went over to shake uh, Walter's hand. I was, I was kind of nervous, and uh, he, he, he lunged for me, and I, I kind of shrunk back, but he picked me up. I'm, I'm 200 pounds, 6 feet, 200 pounds. He lifted my feet off the ground, and he started sobbing. And he told me, in essence, two things. First of all, he had placed his faith in Jesus Christ as his only hope. And secondly, he realized that he didn't have to do a moment's work to gain or maintain a righteous standing before God. And he was sobbing. And I could barely understand his, his inaudible words, but he was saying something to the effect that he was free to love God and he was free to love people for the first time in his life and not to use them. About a year later, we had a devastating hurricane in our area. Three, actually, we ended up canceling church three times because of hurricanes. And um, the youth pastor and I were driving around one day in his, uh, his uh, Ford pickup truck trying to assess the damage. Cell phone use was spotty. And we went to Walter's house because we got a word that there was some pretty significant damage in his home. And um, he said, you know, Pastor, I want you to come inside. I want you to come into my master bedroom. And we went in there. And there was this gaping hole where there was an oak tree coming through his master bedroom. And he just, he just looked at me. He said, you know, a year ago, you know, my, my wife and I, we sought refuge in the inner closet and the interior of my house. A year ago, I would have told you that we saved ourselves, that God was not my refuge. And I would have been ticked at God for this hole in my roof. And then he started giggling. I kid you not. He started giggling. And he said, Dan, I have a hole in my roof, and I am filled with joy and peace. And then he points to the roof and says, to God be the glory. What about you? What tree or trees have smashed into your life? What relationships or situations are you overly dependent upon to give you joy? What did Walter discover that you have forgotten? Go to Jesus, because in him there is fullness of joy. Run to him. Rest on him. Delight in him. Let's pray.